0: Hello everybody and welcome to episode 25 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Morrie and on this episode, the stuff that matters is all about the game's oldest major, the Open Championship. 2013 marks the 142nd staging of the Open and this year it will be hosted for the 16th time at what many consider to be the best test of Lynx golf on the planet. Muirfield, of course. In Scotland, shortly we'll be joined by a special guest to discuss all things open and Muirfield, a man who'll actually be amongst the 156 strong field next week. But before we come to that, let me introduce my co-hosts for today's episode from the US, though about to leave for the UK, I believe. Blogger, author, course architect, Jeff Shackleford-Shack. Excitement must be at fever pitch in your household as you prepare for this evening's flight
1: can't wait i love uh the whole area it's just so neat i just uh i can't wait to see the whole
0: thing in action with the open yeah and uh, looking forward to following your blog as you uh, as as the week unfolds as well from here in australia player commentator and one half of the ogilvy clayton design team mike clayton Clayton seems to be a bit of a pattern developing here mate every major we watch on television from australia and shaq makes his way over there to watch it in person what's going on there
2: well we need to get off our proverbials and get over there, I suppose. But it would be nice to be there. But anyway, we're not, we're in the...
0: Melbourne winter. Yeah, well, that's right. In the middle of the night, worst major of the year for Australian television because it's on in the middle of the night, but we'll be enjoying it anyway. Last but by no means least, today's special guest, the other half of the Ogilvy Clayton design team, fresh off two rounds at Turnberry, no less, 2006 US Open champion, Jeff Ogilvy. Jeff, great to have you aboard. Uh, Hard to believe we haven't taken advantage of our connections to get you on previously. That's our fault. Looking forward to chatting today.
3: I know. I've been listening... Uh, Probably not to twenty four episodes, but quite a few of them. So I'm, uh, I feel privileged to be a part of the crew. <laughs> well,
0: it uh, it's very much coming from the other way, Jeff. I will start with you, Jeff Ogilvy. I said it when we did the Marion show, Shaq, that we weren't going to do two Jeffs again. But Jeff's been, uh, being a major champion gets a special dispensation. Jeff Ogilvy, you did play two rounds at Turnbury today. You told me in an email you were going to. And did you get to play two rounds? How was it? And why did you do that?
3: Um, I did. I played both courses at Turnberry or both 18 hole courses at Turnbury, the Ailsa and the Kintyre, which was called the Aaron course when I was here <laughs> for, the, for the amateur in 1996, which disturbingly someone reminded me was 17 years ago
0: wow.
3: uh, this morning. Um, but I played the Ailsa this morning and the Kintyre this afternoon, two completely different golf courses, um, stunning weather here in scotland at the moment i mean it's 24 degrees and sunny it's like san diego here um or probably like los angeles for for jeff but uh i mean every year i try to come over early um and get into the feel of things i mean we get so used to the ball stopping where it lands in the u.s and playing in the green rough and stuff so it's nice to you you remember what it's all about and you know how to do it but it's still you can't replicate it anywhere else in the world but on the seaside courses in the uk so if i can get here early i do so we've done a few different places i've done the lancashire courses and i've gone the gallon route on the east coast kind of near where we're playing this year and this year we've gone the kind of west coast of scotland air we're doing turnbury preswick troon western gales so it's a uh, it's a treat to be here in good weather. Special yeah. today. It was a special day today.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's bucket list stuff for uh, for any golfer. You said we there. Who else are you traveling with? Other professional golfers, or have you got a crew of old mates from Melbourne? Who are you who are you playing with?
3: I have one mate from Melbourne who Mike knows, uh, Ben Townsend. Ben um, oh, is there? Yeah, yeah. Taz is here, so he was a. Guy, I grew up playing pennant golf with the Victoria Golf Club. He was a legitimately good golfer at one time. He's, uh, he's,
0: he's a nice back there, yeah.
3: Now, now a part-time golfer. He's begging me for more shots every day, which is disappointing. We used to play off a stick. Um, and a couple of others, good friends. So we did a trip. The same four of us actually did a trip to Bandon, Bandon last year and played all the group. We did it the week before the U.S. Open. So, this is the second year, so hopefully it becomes kind of an annual tradition between the the group of us. We did Bandon before the open at Olympic, and this year we're doing kind of Scotland before the open. So hopefully we can make a little tradition of it because it's nice to have a little boys' trip on golf courses and just play thirty six holes a day and have a couple of beers and stuff. It's been uh, today was the first day of our trip. It's been really nice.
0: Fantastic. Many of your tour brethren wouldn't be up for that sort of thing, I wouldn't, Jeff. I mean, the last thing they want to do is um, think about or play golf, or particularly social golf, God forbid, where there's not even any money at the end of the line. You've always been this way, you always had that sort of recreational golf still in the soul? Well, I think so. I mean, this is
3: – it's incredible. I mean, for anyone who's ever been at Turnberry or knows about the little par 3, they have there's a little par 3 course, about 9 or 10 holes or 12 holes, I think it is, at the front of the – between the hotel and the golf course. Um, we were just out there playing right now, actually. It's uh and i you can't get the smile off our faces. I mean we're four grown men. Four grown men like like kids in a candy store. It is it's it's the most fun you can have. And I just uh I couldn't imagine I don't think I'd play the sport if times like this didn't exist actually. This is uh it's kind of I need to do this to remind me why I play because the tour can wear you out and you get so stuck in the scores you're having and how bad your swing is, and I can't believe I'm not making enough putts. But you come here and you forget all about that, and you just play golf, and you you remember why you play the game. Um, so once or twice a year, I, I I'm lucky enough that I get to do this. This I can actually call this. This is a tax write-off. This is for me. This is this is preparation for the biggest tournament of the year. So um, I, I can I can get paid almost to do this, and it's an incredible uh, privilege, I guess.
0: But it reminds me of why i do what i do now you're just being nasty with the tax write-off stuff shack it's uh it's an interesting position i can't think of too many other players who do that sort of thing yet we've had two guys in the last what three or four weeks matt goggin told us the same thing didn't he He goes to barnboogle june sometimes just to remind himself why it is that he plays golf it's refreshing to hear isn't it from from guys at that level
1: yeah but it also says something kind of about i guess the golf courses they play and and maybe just all the money that's in the game it is it is uh it, you do wonder how many guys actually now play for, for fun. Yeah, um, still enjoy but it. I, yeah, I'm kid- Jeff, have you ever played the Par 3 course sir?
3: I had 17 years ago, in fact. Oh, okay. um,
0: <laughs> As you were reminded, no doubt, today a couple of times.
3: We did lots of laps. I remember it was my favorite thing about Turnbury because that amateur was incredibly difficult. And Steve Allen, actually, uh, who Clates knows, who's, played, who's been on and off the tour a bit, and he's won the Australian Open in... 0- Two,
0: maybe? A yeah. yeah.
3: three-day event, yeah. three-day event, yeah. He, and uh, he shot 86-65 to qualify on the number. Like I'll, I remember it like it was yesterday because um, the weather was just absurdly bad the first day and anyone who was on the of course the first day had no chance. And we were all kind of... Me and another, uh, the, the guy we were traveling with, Jamie McCallum, we, we were kind of laughing all night at Stevie for shooting 86, as you do when you're competitive young kids. <laughs> and Stevie went out the next day and shot 65 on the then Aaron course to qualify on the number. And I think he had to play the number one qual. I think it was Warren Bladen that year, um, and he lost. But that's really beside the point. We must have done 25 laps around this little like 12-hole oh, wow. par three, 3 course. I mean anyone it's it's hard to explain if anyone has four or five acres at their golf course they don't know what to do with and they don't build one of these it's just bizarre it's I would choose to play it over a big course any day of the week it is so much fun it's incredible Um, so my all I want to do when I come back to Turnbury is play the little par 3 at the hotel it's amazing
0: Mm. Well, we're going to talk probably a little bit about architecture and state-of-the-game stuff later after we've chatted about the Open, Jeff. But you must keep in mind, as a course architect, I found the same thing when I went to Scotland with a mate of mine in 97. And the other thing you see about those little par three and the pitch and putt course are in there, lots of families and kids. I mean, if you want to get people into golf, it's a great way to do it. I mean, apart from the fact that it's light until late at night at Scotland, but not unusual to see mum, dad, and two or three kids out on one of the pitch and putts or the short courses in Scotland at 8.30 at night after dinner, is it? Um, Got to be good for the game, you would think.
2: I
3: think, I mean, anybody can play these. I mean, I mean, here I am playing professional golf for however long, almost 17 years, and it's still the funnest thing I can do. I, I still look forward to, for years, to come back and do something like this. Yet, I mean, my five-year-old son would come out here and have the time of his life, you know, because he can reach holes in one, you know, and maybe putt for a birdie. And stuff. I mean, and it, it runs the whole spectrum of golfers. I mean, it's the most fun I can have and it's the most fun he can have and everyone in between. I mean, you can't speak enough for it. I mean, I guess St. Andrews does, kind of does the same thing with the, uh, the Himalayas, the ladies' putting course next to the second tee there. I mean, that's, that's like the original mini-golf. Um, it's uh, tremendous fun and it's in- amazing to me that it hasn't been replicated anywhere else in the world. Scotland seems to have got it right and no one else seems to have followed perhaps some of the cooler parts of the game over here.
0: Well, that's the fun stuff. Clates, have you ever been asked in your, uh, your travels as a, as a course designer, architect and advisor to various... anybody ever said to you we're thinking about a par three course or a pitch and putt or something a bit different?
2: Well, we did a four-hole par three course at Heelsville, which is really good. In fact, no one plays it. It's bizarre because it's on the bottom side of the clubhouse, but it's really good. And well, it's not true to say no one plays it. Every time I go there, there's there's an old bloke. He said no one else comes down here. It's amazing. I play this whole thing by myself. I go round and round and round. But Matt Goggin and I, we we found some great land for, at Seven Mile Beach to do it. So it doesn't really matter how many holes it is. You can make five mm-hmm. holes or seven holes or whatever. So, and you can play crossover holes. So. But there's one spectacular little pocket down there where you can do an amazing par-3 course. So I know the one at Bandam works really well, so I'm sure we'll do it there.
0: Hmm. Shaq, is there much of it in the States? You don't hear much about the sort of short I know they have the, the sort of executive par-3 course, but they tend to be a bit longer, don't they? 100 yards and plus. Uh,
1: no, that's why the game's uh, in bad shape here. We uh, and, and you... you uh, talk to people about building them, and, and golfers here just they want to hit driver. They don't they don't understand that. A it's fun, and B it's great for your short game. Um, but the, that said, the horse course we built at the Prairie Club, where you can kind of pick your um, pick your tee based on who has the honor, and there's we didn't really build des- um, designated tees. People love it, and it was meant to be sort of an end of the day place to hang out with a beer and take three clubs, or a way to start your day just as a little warm up mm. thing. Um, and people love it. And, um, and, and you know, uh, you, like Jeff said, you, you talk to people with uh, four to five acres here and they just um, they can't see a lot of money being made at it. And uh, it's, it's sad. You know, North, North Berwick has a little kids course. It's really cool um, outside the Marine Hotel, too. I was just thinking when he was talking about this, uh, uh, which is where I'll be on Sunday. Um, but I think the kids... I think it's really only for the hotel guests of the kids. But anyway, it's really cool too.
0: Yeah, interesting stuff. We might chat more about that at some point. Of course, we do have to talk about the Open Championship because it's on next week. Jeff, uh, you've played in – I had a look at this. You've played uh, – I can't remember how many. You've played 10. Uh, open Championships. Now you didn't play in 02 at uh, at Muirfield when they got blown off the golf course on the Saturday. Just horrendous conditions. I think Tiger shot 81. Monty had 84. So you're probably glad you weren't part of that <laughs> Steve Allen type weather. How do you generally feel a week out from the Open? You're in the country. You've got all the atmosphere. I'm sure they're talking about it. it's in the papers. It'll be on the radio and on television. What's the what's the vibe like for someone who's going to tear it up at Muirfield next week? At this point, a week out.
3: I mean, well, I'm pretty excited um it's it's my favorite golf tournament, probably well, along with the masters I mean I love playing the masters that's underdoing the masters i mean but as for as soon as you drive out of the of augusta after on the Sunday of the masters, all I think about is the open really i mean it's the most important tournament of the year I think for a golfer who's not an american um fantastic i mean muirfield if you just look at the list or at least the last five or six winners it's just a, a stunning list of basically number one in the world at the time or close to or all-time hall of, hall of fame legends um so i'm pretty excited it's a tournament i've had a fairly up and down record i've had a couple of reasonable finishes and a couple of bad ones i mean i had a couple of bad draws there which happens in the open for a couple of years and i probably played a couple of bad ones but last year i played okay um i live and kind of enjoyed the open again um so I've been looking forward to this one quite a lot. I mean, Muirfield—I played the amateur at Muirfield. I think it was 1998. Um, and played quite well, qualified well, and I think I got to the quarterfinals. Sergio ended up winning the tournament. It was kind of the the big kind of hello to the world for Sergio. And I just remember we played Gullan number one at Muirfield. I just loved the whole week and everything about it. I just think Muirfield probably even more than St Andrews uh, demands every shot in the bag. Um, you got to move it both ways. you got to be able to carry some shots onto the green. you got to be able to run some up. You've got to be able to use your brain a little bit. you got to be able to read the weather and conditions. No two holes, run the same direction in a row almost. It feels like you're kind of always changing direction. Uh, it's got long holes, short holes, usually pretty severe rough. Uh, it's the complete test. It's kind of everything you want in a championship golf course. I mean, it's... It's the complete test. I mean, we so rarely have a complete test these days in modern golf that it's it's kind of uh, exciting to look forward to a golf that if you actually bring your complete game to the UA, you will do well. And that's that's a nice thing to uh, bring to a tournament. So often we play these golf courses that are too soft or too narrow or too much rough or some strange thing with a setup that perhaps it's all about putting or all about straight driving. But Mulefield, I think... Uh, it's a complete test and i think it's worth looking forward to to something like that mm.
0: they've added 158 yards to the course this year shack it's 7000 and something yards as they all seem to be these days you've had those whole flyovers on the blog uh for the last week which are fantastic by the way the, the, the little hole is yeah. that they've done that golf monthly thing you were there i think at, uh, at Muirfield last year you're pretty familiar with the course you've had a couple of things to say during the flyovers what's your take having not seen it as yet in person but from what you've seen on the flyovers and what you've read and pictures you've seen of the course uh how do you think they're going to sort of of course it's had the rna treatment quote unquote yeah the uh, treatment how's, yeah. how's that worked out do you think so far
1: uh, it, was, it was brutal last year, but it was so wet over there last year. I, I, I'm, I'm hearing mixed things, but mostly good that it's, it's not as out of control. You know, they've narrowed some of the landing areas and taken out uh, some, some really neat places to hit it. But for the most part, what Jeff described is all still there. There's a couple new back tees uh, since he's been there, I would think. Um, the 13 isn't very good. It's, it's one of my favorite holes in the world. and it, it, they, they moved it a little bit to the right and back. And the angle just isn't quite the same, so I hope they use the the shorter tee a little bit. Um, but it's 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 got some sensational holes. The greens are not particularly uh, interesting, but they are. Uh, watching the uh, the replay of 2002 the other night, I noticed that they got them pretty quick, and they uh, a lot of new little breaks uh, pop up that that aren't there kind of under normal speed. So I'll, I'll be curious what. What Jeff does in terms of – because I know you don't like to to play practice rounds once the tournament started, but I'm kind of curious how you approach that place, uh, trying to pick up local knowledge and remind yourself of kind of the wins and and where you want to miss it and not miss it.
0: Jeff? That was sort of a question. Um, (laughs) Well, Shaq Shaq likes to ask his questions so that no one's really sure. Yeah, it wasn't a very good one. he, He has asked you a question there. What do you do about practice? Um,
3: I don't know. I mean, I actually think Muirfield is relatively obvious what to do, um, which isn't actually a, I would normally think that's not a compliment, but I think Muirfield just asks you to hit great shot after great shot. Um, it, uh, it presents a challenge. Like you say, the greens aren't the biggest challenge and so many, I mean, of the, Top hundred golf courses in the world, 94 of them have really challenging, slopey greens, and the greens are generally the 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 uh the the outstanding thing about the golf courses usually. Um Mulefield is more about the shape of the holes, the great sensible positioning of the bunkers, um changing direction, the subtle kind of direction changes and good strong shots. So I mean I guess um it's Reasonably obvious how to play Muirfield. You you keep it out of the fairway bunkers. You try to open up the greens off the tee, um, and you've just got to hit good shots. Uh, you have to obviously choose the sensible shot to hit um, on every hole. You know, don't take on too much. Miss the ball in the right spot. I mean, I think it's relatively obvious. I just, you've just got to hit really really good shots. I think it's kind of unique like that. Whereas something like St Andrews is. Continues to um, kind of confuse you in a way. It uh, it has a lot more subtlety, and some will feel it's just eight, eighteen holes where you just got to hit seventy great shots. You know, I just think it's a uh, it's a good test. So in practice, I guess I just try to hit those shots and get comfortable off the tees. I think the tee shots are very awkward. I mean, it starts probably the, the hardest first hole tee shot in golf, maybe. I don't know if Glates would disagree with or agree with that. I don't know. I mean, it's an incredibly tough
2: first wow. hole. And do you think? Well, it's only a hard shot because it's so narrow. I mean, it's not like it's hard because of any undulation change or any slope or it, it's just narrow. And if you're in the bunkers, you're done. And, well, they played the senior it, open, they played the senior open there a few years ago, and it averaged over five the third day because it was into the wind. It's very awkward. I mean, Muirfield doesn't do a lot of its
3: challenge by. Uh, keeping you unsighted i mean a lot of links courses you're kind of unsighted off the tee and a bit unsure of where to go i mean the first hole is it just an awkward tee shot you're kind of staring over rough and all you can see is rough it's hard to see the fairway and you kind of want to go up the left but there's bunkers there and it's a uh, compared to last year at Lytham, it's just a little six on under the middle of the green two part and then kind of go to the second tee you know I muirfield mean, i mean you you might have one of the most challenging shots on the very first shot uh I just think it's a, just a great golf course. that demands great shots all day.
0: When's the last time you played it, Jeff? I mean, how familiar with Muirfield are you? You said you'd played an amateur there in '98, but uh, how familiar are you? Have you played it many times since? And when was the last time you played it?
3: I played it one time soon after that. Um, I haven't played it since. I actually uh, had one of those little Muirfield experiences a couple of years ago, where I was set. I was set to play, and um, one of our uh, esteemed Australian travelling journalist Bernie McGuire actually put it in one of the Scottish or Irish newspapers oh. that I was set oh. to play Muirfield that week leading up to whichever open it was. I think it was a couple of years ago. Um, and Muirfield got a wind of it and said, oh, well, we're not sure we need that sort of publicity. And they told me that I couldn't play. Or they told <laughs> t- told the my introducing uh, greenkeeper, who Clayton knows, I think. Um, yeah. That he can bring guests, but they didn't think he was a real friend of mine, um, which was interesting. Um,
0: <laughs> now you know how the women feel, <laughs> Jeff.
3: <laughs> well, it was more of a kind of a you should have called us, Jeff, on your mm-hmm. own. I think, and mm-hmm. like it's, but that's the way it is. I mean, that happens all around America. That would happen at Augusta. That would happen at Pine Valley. That would happen Cypress Point everywhere. So it's it's their right. Um, but I haven't played it for
0: probably. Twelve or thirteen years, and probably. Nor have you spoken to Bernie Maguire since, so that's why oh. we don't see any Jeff Ogilvy stories from Bernie McGuire. How does that usually work, Jeff? I mean, I'm sure you've done this at various places. You being a bit of a course architecture nut, do you just ring up and say, "I'm Jeff Ogilvy. I won the 2006 US Open. Can I come over and have a hit at the course?" Is it that simple, or do your people go through other people? Have you got people? How does uh-huh. that work?
3: I do have people. I try not to use people for things like that. I mean, it depends on where I'm going. I mean, if. You play, we play enough pro-ams and you play golf long enough or professional golf long enough, you're bound to bump into a member of Cypress Point or Pine Valley or Shinnecock Hills or something. And you take all the business cards as you do in all the pro-ams and you, 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 you pass on notes when you really enjoy the pro-am to how much you enjoyed it and all that. But when you get that Pine Valley member or the Cypress Point member, you really make sure you send that email and you and you stay in touch and you do your networking um, because most courses are open arms when it comes to a tour pro. Most courses love it. Uh, head professionals and director of golfs usually have quite a lot of power in letting other pros come play the golf course. It's how it's always worked in Australia. It works most around the world if you call the professional or the manager. They're usually pretty good. Just come and fit in with the members. Don't come at a bad time and you can play pretty much whatever you want. Um, but there's definitely a handful of courses in the US and the UK that you need to go. You, 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 there's no special privilege to being a touring professional. You just you do the right thing. You know a member or you don't get on. And Pine Valley, Cypress Point, Muirfield, um, Swinley Forest. I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty of them, of the great golf courses. And you just... Um, hopefully bump into the right person at the right time who who can get you on one of those courses. So it's a bit of both. Most courses are great and fantastic and they love us to come and play. Uh, other courses take a bit more work.
0: Mm, well it's it's kind of nice to know. It's comforting for an average hacker to know that there are at least some places you can't just walk onto because you've won the US Open and you play the US Tour. That's kind of nice. Clates, how familiar are you with Muirfield, And just get some of your thoughts about what we might see next week and any hints and tips and thoughts you've got perhaps for Jeff about the course and how it's going to play.
2: Uh, I went there and I watched the 1980 Open there, which Watson won. It was the first time I saw it. Then I played in 92 and didn't play in 97. I stayed with Grades in 97. He played well there. And I played the Senior Open there. So I've, and, and I've played there a lot with Huggy and Dean, Jeff's greenkeeper, who's really, really the main greenkeeper there. So I've played there quite a bit. I mean, it's, uh, as he said, it's quite straightforward in a sense. You can see where you're going on almost every hole except for the 11th up the hill there. and It's a tremendous course, but nothing truly you know, incredibly flashy, just a really great, solid golf course. I mean, the sixth hole is probably the most spectacular and best hole on the course, but aside from that, it's just, as Jeff said, it's just out there and you've just got to hit great shots.
0: What are some of the highlights to look out for, Clates? What holes in particular or shots in particular will will you be looking for? Every course has got one, hasn't they? A hole or a particular shot when someone hits it in a particular spot and you think, oh, it's going to be interesting seeing what happens from there.
2: Well, the fourth's an unbelievably difficult short hole. I think it's got a new tee, so so that's a difficult kind of high up green and hard to hit and no good if you miss it. Six is a tremendous par four. I think eight's always an interesting hole. Uh, It's a pity they don't cut the rough down the side of nine to encourage more people to play down the fence there. Because that would, it's a really good hole, but that would make it an even better hole. I think they've moved the 10th tee, so it'll be interesting what people make of that. Um, And then 12 down the hill, 13, 17. You know, there's been a lot of stuff happening at 17 over the years. Yes. Uh, most Most famously, probably Trevino and Jacqueline, which sort of finished Jacqueline's career off. And then just that not hole, the great shots that have been hit there under pressure, I mean, Feldo really, twice hit those two great shots there and won both opens with, with tremendous iron shots. So, you know, it's a solid test. Mm.
0: Uh, you mentioned Lee Trevino there. I've got access to pay TV for the first time in about 10 or 12 years and they had a little um, special on last night on the pay TV thing over here with Lee Trevino talking about that open but that aside Shaq just looking at the pictures and watching this sort of documentary unfold you remember we we just we only get to see this once a year don't we it's so shockingly different the look of an open course to what you see for the other 51 weeks of the year and I think that's part of the excitement and going from America over there you must just be thrilled at the prospect of just looking at a golf course that looks so different everything else aside
1: um, yeah the look is definitely part of it but I going out and watching the golf and getting to see the guys play shots they're just not used to playing and, and or, or, or uh, trying to play their normal game when when it's just not not really working with the way the winds blowing and, and the way the ground is and and then to see you know that it's actually going to be firm this year is um, it's it seems like uh, and the weather forecast is promising that um, you may actually have to put the ball on the ground even more. Um, and so, that to me is really the most exciting thing to uh, to, to see at Muirfield because, uh, and the wind. I mean, we just don't see them play in wind like this very often. And the wind is, um, it was so fun. I got to interview, actually, I interviewed Jeff at Muirfield Village, but uh, right before I talked to him, I had spoken to Nick Faldo and um, for this uphill par three. St- story I was doing and just listening to him go through the holes and start talking about uh how how to play them and how how important the wind is and which holes you you just absolutely don't take a chance on like seven um he just loves seven because he just thinks that's an absolute you have to get it as low as possible get it on the green and and just get out of there and listening to him talk through the golf course is just fascinating because he, he, and I don't know whether he, I mean, you can't say he over analyzes it cause he won twice there. So I think he, uh, I think he knows it pretty well and is pretty, has a pretty brilliant golf mind. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, it was really, really fun. Listen to that. I mean, that got me more excited probably than anything about uh, this open, just, just hearing him go through the intricacies of, of uh, a course that really,
0: I never have seen as having that many intricacies. You, uh, you better pass those notes on to uh, to Jeff Ogilvy. Jeff Ogilvy uh, do you do much in the talking to, to blokes or listening to or reading up on stories about, you know, for example Faldo and his thoughts on the course how much information do you take in from outside when you're preparing for a tournament like this? I mean, it's not like you can't play you don't need help so much but are there snippets to be gained from outside apart from just your own experience?
3: Um, I think so I mean I watched them all when I was a kid. I mean, I probably watched every major from 86 probably and had most of them on video and watched quite a lot of them. 92, I watched quite a lot. I mean, he hit an incredible shot in a 15. Um, This kind of little knockdowny thing that looked like it was going to be 25 feet, but it kind of used the slope and ran down really close to the hole. Um, Faldo, I'm talking. Um, And he was a big player in that whole period from like 86 to 96 or whatever, when I was watching a lot of majors and kind of growing up, he was a big part of most of them, you know, him and Greg. And uh, as Jeff says, he really knew how to play golf, especially when it got hard and you had to use your brain. I mean, he had a great golf brain. Um, I think he can pick up a little bit.
0: um, The danger is is listening to too much, I would think, isn't it, Jeff? You know, getting too much information... It ends up being just a big soupy mess. I would have thought.
3: I think. I mean, it's using the information correctly. I guess. I mean, too much information is never bad. I, I, you can never have too much information. I just think if if you get obsessed with details and you and you really get obsessed with the way someone does something, then perhaps you can get a little bit off track. But I think it's definitely worth looking at the type of players who win at certain golf courses, especially opens because definitely opens definitely suit certain types of players um, the types of players and what types of games they play to win at certain places I think can definitely be educational I mean where where Faldo might like to knock a shot down on the seventh hole for example hit as low as he can I mean perhaps I don't want to play it like that perhaps I like to hit my win shots and Hit two clubs more, and just hit a little bit higher, and take the spin off it, and land it in the middle of the green. I mean, I, we, you try to get the same result that they get, but in the way that you're comfortable doing. Um, so I think you can. There's there's a bit to be gained, for sure. I don't th- as I said, I don't think you can have too much information. I just think you can use that information poorly. Um, so I, I've been. I've read, I've been I've been reading golf books and watching golf on TV since I was a little kid so I'm probably over golf information rather than under golfed information but uh I there's stuff to be learned if and if if I if the opportunity presented itself between now and Thursday morning and I saw Nick and he looked willing to actually talk um I'd probably ask him a question <laughs> or two I reckon <laughs> well,
0: he's probably all talked out he's spoken to Shaq already that's enough uh enough, Jeff, for him. What role does personality play in all that? I was just thinking while I was listening there, Jeff, I would imagine that yourself and Nick Faldo are two very different sorts of personalities, and that shows up in the golf game and the way people go about it, too, don't they? You, um, you couldn't fit your golf game to Nick Faldo's personality, I wouldn't think. Or could you? I don't know. Is there anything in that question, or is that a bunch of hooey?
2: Well,
3: I'm glad I'm a different personality than Nick Faldo. Um... <laughs>
0: That's it. He's certainly not talking to you now before Thursday.
3: That <laughs> wasn't negative. I me. Mean, he... I like Nick Faldo. He was a brilliant guy. He won six majors. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, certain personalities, obviously, evidently over history, have been suited to obviously these really difficult tests. Um, These kind of they're such long weeks, aren't they? The difficult tests and certain when the scores get tough and the course gets hard and it seems to be a really long week. Certain. Mentalities and certain personalities seem to have thrived. So I guess you can, as I said, if you look at the people who win and the players who win and the types of players who win and the types of personalities who win at certain golf courses, you can try to kind of work out what part of these personalities and try to find some common ground there and see if you can Channel you're in a Nick Faldo when you go to Muirfield, or you're in Nick, you're in a Nick Faldo, or you're in a Jack Nicholas when you go to Muirfield. I mean, players who have dominated places. So, um, or you're in a Tiger Woods when you go to Augusta or St Andrews. You know, um, you can try to work out the common threads between the personalities and see what what traits they've got. Usually, it just means that, especially at Muirfield and Augusta and St Andrews, that they've just got all the shots and they're just better than everyone else. Um, but I guess you can try to emulate the traits that you think make them stand
0: out on those sort of courses? Well, or, or, yeah, sort of, certainly something. Of Jeff speaking about all of that, I remember uh, interviewing you back in 2007, uh, probably a couple of weeks before you went to defend the US Open, and one of the things we chatted about was sort of this change you'd gone through, which you'd spoken about publicly. I think it sort of came along with kids and marriage. You went from being a bit of a hothead to suddenly realising that, you know, uh, that was no way to play your best golf has that managed to stay with you you've had a bit of a difficult kind of year this year haven't you there was that whole run-up to the masters where you really put in the effort and i think we spoke to clates about it and you know some felt maybe you were trying too hard to get to the masters of course you missed the masters which must still hurt uh i'm sure um what about your own sort of state you know and stage in life um as we head into into this open you've said it's your favorite major but you haven't had your best performances at the open have you it's it's it's, it's a bit unusual in some ways i would have thought
3: it is i mean i I played a lot of amateur golf on the links courses and i did quite well I mean, i had some pretty good tournaments and all the the biggest tournaments over here on the seaside courses so i mean i i guess i felt like starting my career i was starting my pro career i was fairly well suited to this sort of stuff because i'd probably done more of it than a lot of guys who were playing over here um but it hasn't really worked out that way i think yeah i mean it since, I mean, I had my first child in 2006 and my third in 2010, so I had a pretty busy period there family-wise and played quite well through that period, but I guess uh, at some point it catches up with you. Um, going to the going to practice or going to the golf course or going to that extra golf tournament or being at that golf tournament and wanting to be there when you've got all um, this uh, new family at home Got, well, not got difficult, but got the priorities kind of changed and got out of whack a little bit, and I was just trying to work out how to best manage them both. Um, so yeah, it's uh, hasn't been my best period on the golf course probably for the last couple of years. I think I I didn't play horrendously last year. I didn't get any great results out of it, but I I really liked how I played last year, and I think this year I kind of freaked out a little bit and tried a bit too hard as you said to make the Masters and probably played a few too many tournaments and it was too much of a priority and if I if I kind of sat back and relaxed and just played played where I wanted to how I wanted to I it might have all just taken care of itself you know Um, but I probably tried a bit too hard played a few too many tournaments so a bit of a panic really because I hadn't been in that position for so long Mm. and didn't really know how to deal with it so and I obviously didn't really deal with it very well i mean i I kind of had a pretty good tournament in, at the Honda in Florida and kind of got back in the mix and then played every week after that and fell straight back out of the mix and um it was a frustra it's been a frustrating period, but I kind of feel like I'm on the cusp of having a really good golf patch i mean i everyone probably says stuff like that, so you listen to a professional golfer and everyone probably rolls their eyes but i it's been a pretty rough run i think i've without getting too kind of zen or deep or anything i feel like i've kind of found the or work getting a lot closer to working out how i need to go about it and how i need to approach it and how i need to set my schedule and like work out my time at home and work on tour and the practice and the kind of the the business stuff i've got going on with the course design and stuff so trying to get the whole balance and worked out and i think i'm getting a lot closer to that so i feel like um there's no reason at this point why the next four or five years couldn't be the best four or five years i've had in the golf course
0: Clates, of course we used to say golfers matured in their 30s didn't we Uh, and then tiger woods came along and we decided that they didn't that they matured in their early (laughs) teens and were ready to win majors (laughs) Now they're, of course, making the cut at the Masters at the age of 14. But some of that stuff that Jeff's touched on there, do you reckon that's got harder in the last 20 years? When you were on tour uh, overseas, sort of 80s and 90s, was it, not easier, but was it a, were there a different bunch of pressures to what Jeff's talking about there? And how, do you, how, how, and how important is it for players to learn how to deal with that stuff? Jeff said something there, which I've heard a lot of golfers say, and it's obviously important. Got to work out what works for them, because it's different for everybody, isn't it?
2: Well, it was harder. In the, playing in Europe, in the sense that there wasn't much money, so it was the hardest thing for us was you never came home. I mean, you you were making top sixty in Europe when I went first went There it was twelve thousand pounds, so the, the thought of flying home in the middle of the year was out of the question. So you were eight months away from Australia, which was no internet, no Skype, no anything. It was so that was a that was a difficult part of that. But I mean, to me, it shows what an amazing player Nicholas was. who went through all the things Jeff spoke about, but with five kids and. Yeah, and 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 having never missed a beat, really, that was just an incredible effort, really. But um, I mean, every era has different pressures. But one, you know, at this point certainly isn't the money. The guys make enough money, but it's still you've still got to keep your privileges and keep making the top one twenty-five and keep qualifying for Augusta. And so the you know the pressures that were there for forty years ago are still there. Jeff, just was it right that if you didn't play, if you hadn't played after? The Honda you would have gotten the masters
3: um it's a no one's ever actually um said definitively yes or no,
2: but I would have been in a much i would have been closer yeah. um someone told I, me that the other day that uh, they said it, if if it stopped at Honda when you finished second you 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 would have stayed until the top fifty, which is obviously seriously annoying. <laughs>
0: could have been pretty play.
3: annoyed. Someone, <laughs> yeah, told me that, yeah. someone told me that before I teed it up at Houston, which was my fifth oh. or sixth tournament in a row, which was two, which was the last tournament before the Augusta cutoff. Um, and they said, well, if you hadn't played the last three weeks, if you hadn't played Tampa and Bay Hill, and well, I was Tampa and Bay Hill, if you hadn't played the last two weeks, you would have been, you would have only had to have just made the cut here at Houston and you would have made the Masters. But okay. they said, because you played the last two weeks, you have to finish eighth or whatever it was. So when they tell you that in the first two, it's like, wow, eighth is pretty good on the PGA too. I'm going to have to play four. <laughs> And that because I was playing under the assumption that the more I played, the better. If I just had one good week, I would have been. And the reality is, if I mean, players complain about top 50s and top 125s and top whatever it is in Q school positions and rankings and ratings, if you play well, you get into what you want to get in. So um, if I'd just gone to Tampa and played well and finished top 20, I would have just gone home and got ready for that, started working on my, drawing my three water around the trees at the 13th. You know, I mean, it it would have, it would have been fine. So you, you sleep in the bed you make for yourself. And I just, I, I made it difficult for myself. So kind of true, there are some masters. I mean, there is there is some players out on tour who are masters of the world ranking. It's a, it's a, it's probably something that's kind of unknown to the general public that there are players who set their schedule and will play, pull out or play a tournament at a whim, just purely based on how their world ranking will come and go. I mean, some of these players will get told in October hey look if you only play one time between now and December the 31st you're guaranteed to be top 50 so don't play and they'll just stop playing um so there's some there's there's a lot of it's not it's not fixing the world rankings it's just using it's just knowing the system and using it to your advantage there's definitely players who will not play events they want to play purely just to to stay in that top 50 it's a very valuable position I mean it pretty much gets you into everything you want to get into so it's a it's an art in itself setting your schedule and, and, and understanding the system and making it work for you. And I, as I said, I, I'm lucky enough that the last seven or eight years I hadn't had to deal with that and this year I did have to deal with it and I obviously didn't deal with it very well. Uh, so my people, as we were talking about before, <laughs> people we were talking about before have all been put on notice so we have to understand the system better.
0: So next time we're going to do it better. Well, of course, it is a whole side of professional golf that the public gives no thought to and doesn't understand, isn't it? How you do get into events, how you do end up climbing up the world rankings, how all that sort of stuff works. I mean, people are quite often astounded to think that you have to have a card to play on the US Tour. They think that, you know, if you're just a good player, you can go and tee it up in a golf tournament. But There is a whole business side that has to be managed, isn't there, just to to selecting where you play and why. And it might not just be as simple as here's a good purse or... Or, you know, that's a good week that you, you enjoy playing on. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that uh, that uh, goes into it. You certainly will be playing next week, though. That's uh, never going to be in question. Jeff Shackelford, what are you looking forward to most as you prepare to get on the plane? Uh, is it the food in the UK that, that draws you? It tends to be very popular with the Americans, the food in the UK. You
1: know, I found the food to be... Uh, uh, quite enjoyable. Maybe I've gotten better at uh, getting better instructions and and tips, um, but no, I I haven't. You do get a little tired of the same breakfast every day and you do kind of wonder how they came about some of uh, these pairings at breakfast. Um, But uh, no, I I just, I can't, the whole area, you know, I wrote a piece for Golf Digest um, saying this is where you need to make your golf pilgrimage. You know, St. Andrews is great and you get your photo waving on the bridge and and you, you've 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 done a really neat thing. But if you really want to go to the place where the game started, and to see a perfect variety of courses, every little kind of of links, um, the quirkiest of the quirky with, with North Berwick, uh, uh, the great classic straightforward Muirfield, and then go to go to these places like Leith Links. I mean, I'm going to go down to to the park. It's now a park in the middle of the city, and just kind of take in the ghosts and imagine that you know, four hundred years ago they were playing golf here and places like that. There's a there's a cool there's a couple of really neat pubs. The oldest golf clubhouse is a is a great pub with a free pitch and putt course right outside um its door in the middle of the city with the university. I mean just taking in all that to me is uh I, I just get goosebumps thinking about it because this is really the home of golf. This is really where a lot of the great things uh that that made golf what it is Or what's left of it, Um, uh, and and it's 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 there. It's and so to be able to go back there to me is just uh, is is pretty neat.
0: There is, in fact, a sort of a spiritual aspect to it, isn't there, Shaq? In that, and no, I can't think of any other sport. That sort of has this, or, or sort of game in that way, where such an incredible connection with the past, as you've just described, but you can almost feel it in these places, can't you? You can certainly sort of feel it at St Andrews when you go. And I'm sure, Jeff Ogilvie, you still feel it somewhere. I think that's what you were alluding to with, with it. But it's not a serious, you know, deep sort of spirit. It's the fun of it, isn't it? The pitch and putt out the front of the pub, the pitch and putt out the front of the hotel at Turnberry. It's a, it's a fun spiritual experience, Shack. I, I well, and
1: the whole atmosphere, ap- yeah, the, yeah, and the whole atmosphere of the towns, either either town, Gollan or North Berwick. It's just everything's about the game and uh uh, you just get i can't wait to be there actually when when the uh when the opens in town i'm sure the traffic's tough but it's just to go and experience all that atmosphere and and uh, yeah i was reading tom simpson's book today i pulled out and read the chapter on east lothian and just just the things that yeah you know what it does is it makes you feel you know, if you're not feeling very good about your game, you, you read these things and you think, my God, people have been dealing with the same problems, the same annoyances, the same concerns about their swing or, or the way a hole bothers them or uh, whatever it is, the, the, the things that, that drive us nuts about golf. They've been doing this for 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 centuries. And so when you, that's why I like going and seeing these old places. Um, I mean, I love history, but also just to kind of put things in perspective. And And I mean, Jeff, is one of the few guys on the tour that kind of actually takes these things into account and, uh, and he's obviously a better person for it. But I think if more people did that, they would, um, they would just have, not just beyond, and it's more than an an appreciation for the game. It's, it's just kind of having a, uh, it gives you a little humility really.
2: Mm. And you can see how golf got hijacked by scoring when you go to Mm. those places. Yeah. The point, the pointlessness of actually scoring at golf when you, go those places and scoring doesn't mm. matter. It's about just go and play a match and it doesn't have to be fair and it doesn't have to be predictable and it's just, just 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 go for hit shots. And, you know, the game's got so waylaid by the importance of fairness and scoring at it when it's not really the point of it.
0: Wasn't it, uh, was it Prestwick Clates where golf didn't start, or they, they didn't tee off till after 11 and there were several bottles of wine consumed? You'd all sit around a big long table and everyone had a- cards, playing cards, and mm. you'd flip them over and whoever had certain cards, they'd play against each other. So there were no, no groups prior booked, it, just a completely different notion to, to anything um, that we have today. I was just thinking about the food while you were talking there, Shaq. Trevino told a story about ordering pie when he, when he, <laughs> when he first went there and... Yeah, I just want a piece of pie with ice cream. Oh! (laughs) He was asked four times, "Ice cream, you sure?" Yeah, ice cream. So it gets up to the room. Of course, it's a kidney pie with two (laughs) two blocks of ice cream on top of it. You can understand how uh, some people might uh, might not take to that. Jeff, what's your favourite part, Jeff Ogilvie, What's your favourite part about the Open? Obviously, there's the playing, but that's kind of you do that every week, don't you? That's kind of your job. Is there something special about the Open? Uh, that you could sort of put a finger on or is it just an atmosphere or is it, as they say in the castle, is it the vibe?
3: Oh, wow. Well, I mean, it, it is the vibe, really. It's 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 like Shaq's saying. I mean, it's you you play your round at Gullen and, and you, well, you don't do it anymore and your metal spikes, but you, you walk off, you carry your bag and your metal spikes and you walk into the pub and no one even turns around <laughs> when you walk into the pub with your spikes on. You just... Mm order your pint and you get your fish and chips and you sit down with your bag and you talk about your round like everyone else in the pub is talking about your round and then you go home. It's, it, it's so entrenched and so part of life here that it's um, it's, just, it's just amazing to be a part of it. It's just, I don't even know how to say it. The, the, the town, the golf course isn't separate from the town. I mean, in the US and Australia and everywhere you go, it's a private club with a big fence around it and the privileged few who are special get to go in the gate and play golf and sit in the clubhouse and talk about the little people who don't get to go in there but in scotland especially scotland it's it's the people's thing i mean the golf course is the town i mean and everybody talk everything is all part of the same thing i mean it's just so inclusive and it's public land and and the man walking his dog to the beach asks you how you're playing that day when he's crossing the fairway and there's no like, oh, don't hit the ball near me and and you don't get mad at him for crossing your fairway. It's just all part of it. I just think it's such a, it's absurd how far away the rest of the world has got from this model because it's so perfect Um, and you can see why golf got as popular as it did. Uh, It's just, it's, it's just, it's how it, it's intertwined with the the town and the community and it's all just part of one big experience I just I don't know if there's any words for it but that's it's the it's the it's the intermeshing with the experience in the town and and the people in the town and the and the local caddies who have been there for, for 20 or 30 years and you go down the local pub and everybody knows that the 14th hole was difficult today because it was playing off the left you know it's just it's just a, it's just a fantastic experience it's 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 all in the whole town's in it's all inclusive everybody knows the sport even if they don't play it they understand it um it's it's
0: everything the game should be which is why i enjoy it I remember being at St Andrews. I went there that one time. I went with BJ actually. Clay. It's me and BJ from Golf Australia. It was just a, yep. it was a fabulous trip. But we we're sitting in the bar opposite the um, the eighteenth at St Andrews. There. I can't remember that. Is it McGinty's, McGinley's, McGinley, McSorley's pub there? And the barmaid played off four. <laughs> to sure. be, you know you're in a golf town when the barmaid plays off single figures <laughs> you know, she's serving the beer but uh, she plays off uh, plays off four clates does all that ring true to you and how do we try to recreate it this is a state of the game question i guess we're coming to now how do we recreate what it is that and i'd sort of forgotten it and jeff reminded me when he was talking about it there you know just how enmeshed in the community's golf is in scotland how do we try and achieve that here because golf is very much seen by non-golfers outside of scotland as you know the the pursuit of the privileged few as as jeff put it we haven't got it as bad here in australia as in some other parts of the world it's more affordable here than in some other parts of the world but how can we try and build that i I imagine you're going to tell me courses are an important part of it i think i'd agree with that
2: well i think the Jeff said the the golf courses are in the town. You play the last at North Berwick, you play back into the town. You at Montrose, you tee off up against the local building, and you know, the, 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 the green's up against the house at St Andrews. Obviously, you play back into the town. So, so the courses started, they, they physically started in the towns, and I guess the town started off as fishing villages and whatever they were way before there was golf. So, so they're it's just the geography of the courses and, and, and the fact that the, the towns were built on the coast and the land was so perfect for golf. So I guess historically it was the meshing of the, the geography of where they built the towns because of what the towns were based on economically and the fact that the land got by the sea was so perfect for playing the game. So you know, I, I suppose it's why you have those kind of flattish sort of less interesting holes perhaps at North Berwick and St. Andrews to finish because it's just you know it's more into the land that's right in the middle of the town but as you go further and further out you really explore the really interesting part of the dunes but it's so there are lots of reasons why it works but but it's a, but of course it doesn't I'm mean a place like Port Ferry in Victoria here it happens a little bit that the, the, the golf course is well it's not that close to the town but it's a reasonably close but There isn't anything in Australia where you literally tee up on the main street and come back to the main street and just play out into the same dunes and come back. There just isn't that sort of relationship between golf and the people and the buildings like there is over there.
0: Mm, It's not something you can sort of invent. You can't suddenly sort of foist that upon a place. It sort of needs to be a part of it historically, I guess, which is the the happy accident, I suppose, that that Scotland gave us... uh gave us golf. Speaking of the state of the game, Jeff Ogilvy, you get a somewhat unique perspective playing on the, the US tour week in and week out. And then of course you come home to Australia for a certain amount of time each year and you get to travel the world. What's your take on the state of golf? It's what we call the podcast and we talk about all sorts of stuff relating to it from, from where you sit. What, what do you see, <clears throat> pardon me, about golf, both good and bad uh, in this modern 21st century era?
3: Um, well, we're starting off firstly where Clayton's finished. I think, I think just in general, the UK generally gets it right. I mean, I just earlier talked about Muirfield being quite exclusive, but um, Clates knows and Shaq probably knows. One of my favourite golf courses in the UK is Swinley Forest. Um, and you can go play there and he might, they might be members, but you'll be out in the golf course and there are members just taking their dog for a walk in the afternoon. Um, can you imagine that happening at Royal Melbourne? <laughs>
2: Well, uh, we're, just, we're talking about that the other day. That's one of the things we completely miss in Australia. Is no one ever walks their dog on the golf course? I mean, what a great place to go and play golf and walk your dog. No one does it here. It's crazy.
0: Are they outlawed specifically? Why? What, look, right? is there rules against walking well, your dog? Well,
2: people would look at you like you're a man if you turned what? up with a dog at Royal Melbourne. I'm like, what are you doing? I like, well, I'm just doing what they do at St. and everywhere, <laughs> everywhere else in Britain.
3: Why would you waste the most beautiful land in Cheltenham and Black Rock and Beau Morris by not letting people walk on it? I mean, it's bizarre. It's just yeah. absurd. And yet the only place in the world they work, they've they got that worked out is the UK. Mm-hmm. So um, I think in some respects, like in places like the UK, the state of the game is tremendous in that respect. And in other places of the world that the porn has been missed. Um, But as far as, I mean, I I only really understand from a professional perspective, I guess. I mean, I feel like I understand from everyone's perspective, but I don't really. I mean, I can't look at it. I can only look at it through my tinted glasses. But um, I think the professional game is in as good a state as it's been for a really long time. I think Tiger's a little uh, sabbatical from the top, if you like, however you want to put it, was really good for the game. It made everybody open their eyes and see that, hey, look, there's there's more than one really good golfer here. We've emerged 10 or 15 amazing personalities and great golfers that people might not have actually looked at when Tiger was winning 10 times a year. So I think that's really good. Um, I think there's some interesting stuff with the rules going on. I think the groove thing kind of hinted at it. and I think this putter thing, has uh, it obviously stirred up a can of worms and it, it kind of showed the everybody show their cards where they sit with um the ruling bodies making changes to the rules um which has been an interesting period i mean i'm on a i'm on a pretty worthless committee but it's the uh the player advisory council on the pgo tour we kind of we were the stepping stone between the, the the player's voice and the board of directors of the tour um, and it's quite interesting the whole anchored part of debate coming from the players and the PGA Tour how, how different it was from how I imagined it was going to be um, but I think it's an interesting period for the ruling bodies I think they're getting a little bit braver I think they got spooked by the ping lawsuit but I think they're getting a little bit braver and I think uh, there might be some interesting decisions coming down the road uh, I think Golf course architecture was a complete disaster for about 50 years, but I think it's actually in the last 15 or so years, it's actually got really, really good. I think there's some really good stuff happening. I think uh, this destination golf thing that's happening is brilliant for golf, um, which is actually in reality kind of replicating what we, what they've been doing in the UK for 400 years, you know, finding the best land and playing on it, you know, which is a novel concept, um, not just finding the land that's convenient to sell real estate. I think there's been some amazing stuff done in the golf course architecture in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, players are starting to get it. I think Mike Davis has done some interesting stuff for the US Open. I think the US Open was a little bit of a a poor leader as far as set up for big championships. And I think it's got a little bit more interesting recently. I think he, it's been over the top the last couple of years. But I think... Uh, Yeah, showed that you don't have to have your right foot off the back of the tee every every time you play a hole and you don't have to have it completely narrow and you don't have to have the longest rough you can grow on every hole to make it a a valid championship. And I think uh, over time, I think the US Open is going to become more and more interesting. I think it'll have its ups and downs, but I think it's got more interesting in the last few years. I think the Open has its ups and downs too. I think Augusta has come back to reality from where they got there for a couple of years i think they have gone back to mastering the art of providing the most amazing three hours of entertainment on a sunday every year um, i think uh from my perspective where i sit i think golf is in a better position as, than it's been in probably for the last few years i think it's a pretty it's a pretty nice period for golf actually
0: Yeah, you're right. Certainly for professional golf, there's no no question about that, which is interesting. And it's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and we've criticised it here pretty much every episode, I think, Shaq, the the feast of courses that gets dished up week in and week out on the PGA Tour. As one who has an interest in course architecture, and in fact something beyond an interest, you actually read about it, you're now in a business with Clates in golf course design and architecture. As a player, is it difficult? and you do confront courses not infrequently, particularly in the US that are uninspiring from an architecture point of view, how does that <clears throat> feed into being a player? Is it more difficult to get up to play a golf course that you just sort of stand and think, wow, this is really one dimensional and quite uninteresting or is that what the work is? Is that what the job is? And the fun part is what you're doing this week. I
3: mean, I guess that's kind of all part of why I come to Turnbridge and come to Scotland before the mm-hmm. open. It's- to, to kind of remember why I play the game, I think it. You you play long enough, especially in the in the US. But I mean, the US isn't the only culprit. The European Tour is doing exactly the same thing. Every, every 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 professional golf tournament I play around the world in Asia and Europe and the US, it's the same. It's long, soft, narrow, long rough, um, white sand. Like it's that that that's what they do. Um, um you just. If you wanna make money and you wanna make cuts and you wanna to win tournaments, you just have to get really good at the things that will make you succeed on the golf course. It's all very quite formulaic, which is Same. probably against against yeah, it's it is disappointing. I mean it's 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 I think it's just a lack of understanding at some point along the way of why the game is great. Um and as Clayt says, it probably is, which is, I guess counter intuitive to professional golf and scoring and who's the best but the the obsession with fairness has taken away a lot of the charm and the fun of the game um but i mean from my perspective i i work out what i need to do to to make checks and to make cuts and to win golf tournaments and i just master those attributes i mean there's less of those attributes than they probably were 100 years ago um, and there's definitely less of those attributes on a weekly basis than there is to win at Muirfield. Um, as I said, that's a complete test. I don't, I, I, I wouldn't use the phrase "complete test" for many weeks. We play on the PGA Tour, um, generally a straight driving putting contest, generally, um, or a long straight driving putting contest, um, but. It's the game we play. I'm, I'm sure tennis players complain about the tennis courts and the tennis balls these days. I mean, Wimbledon apparently has been slowed down, and the hard courts have been suited to to have matches go the right time and the right distance for TV. And that that that's that's the sport we play. We we wouldn't we play at the end of the day whether we agree with it or not. We we're entertainers, and those who those who write the checks for us to play for kind of dictate. That call the shots and dictate what we have to do so we work out what we have to do and i have to get great at putting and chipping out of the rough and driving the ball long and straight so that's that is professional golf could it be bigger and could it be broader and more interesting maybe but um i just have to work on what's going to make make me the most successful
0: could it be a better spectacle jeff for the spectator the man who pays to go and watch it's always struck me that the money in golf comes from television, as it does in all sport, and on television it makes no difference whether you hit the ball 200 yards or 300 yards. That's the reality of it. It doesn't look any different. It certainly does on the ground in person, but what looks even better in person on the ground is when players are forced to hit unusual shots or to shape shots or to do things with the ball that we don't that we see less and less of. Is, is that a fair criticism? Could it be a more interesting spectacle... Could it it be more interesting at at the actual playing level without it being any less interesting on television if we did some things with some of the technology and the ball perhaps, something like that? Um, Well, perhaps.
3: um, Well, perhaps. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it would be. But the thing that baffles me the most is that every single year, for pretty much every year since 1934, there has been an example of the most entertaining thing possible it's a wide fairway golf course with firm slopey greens with strategy all over it that that brings up the best player of the year the biggest champion and the most the most intoxicating tv and entertainment possible and it's the masters every single year and yet nobody copies it no nobody looks at it and says oh, my gosh, well, look at the product, look, look at, like, at the entertainment product that they've got. I mean, everybody, I mean, from, from the Sunday, the Monday morning after the USPGA, it's all anybody talks about is the Masters is coming, who's going to win the Masters, what's going to happen at the Masters, and the Sunday without fail, except for a couple of years there, probably in the mid-2000s, is the most interesting day of the year in golf, generally, and it's everybody's favourite, yet they have wide fairways, no rough. It's not particularly long, really. They have par fives that are completely reachable, and the most interesting thing happens is when the ball is on the ground, rolling and trickling towards hazards and stuff. And yet nobody copies it. I mean, it, to me, that's—I don't understand. That baffles me. That they, the example has been set, yet nobody copies
0: it. It almost borders on inept when you think about it like that, doesn't it? That nobody's figured that out. Yeah. Clates.
2: Well, we'll two, we'll see two weeks in a row this year at Royal Melbourne of the same stuff at the Master, the Australian Masters, and the the World Cup. So, and for me, it's, it's I've been watching golf at Royal Melbourne in tournament since the nineteen seventy two World Cup, and it's always been great fun to watch guys play that golf course because the ball, as Jeff said, I remember staying behind the. The third green on the west course at Royal Melbourne, which was the first on the President's Cup course and the 13th on the old composite, <laughs> if that makes any sense. And It's um, out there somewhere. <laughs> 1974, watching player after player, group after group, downwind with a small ball, land the ball at the very front of that green. Every single one of them ran to the back, except for David Graham who had a small ball out of ball who pulled it up by the hole. But it was amazing watching guys trying to play that shot and you, you, you can sit there for an hour or two hours and just watch one hole, and it's great fun to watch. But you know, the, when, when the opposite happens, guys just splat a wedge onto the green that stops, and they putt. I mean, you can watch that for about five minutes, and then you move on to the next hole. So Augusta and Royal Melbourne really. So, and it's no secret that they're all surprised that they're two of the best five or ten courses in the world.
0: No, of course they are Royal Melbourne.
3: But the baffling thing. The- the baffling thing is nobody copies that model. I mean, nobody no, looks. No, nobody looks at that and says, "Well, what are they doing right, and that we're doing wrong?" And that
2: no one's worked it out. It's incredible. Mm. Well, or, or, or they do it at a place like Castle Stewart, which is similar. It's perhaps a bit easier. But then Graham McDowell says, "I, I don't want to play there because it's one dimensional." Well, yeah, it's uh, completely missing the point. I would have thought, but
0: Paul well, so. Laurie thought so.
2: Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: and said it'll be, it could be an interesting meeting between those two next week, Shaq, will you be uh, lurking around trying to spectate on that when they come up against each other?
1: Uh no, uh, GMac wisely diffused that situation with uh with with an apology and um yeah, it was kind of a it was like uh John Hogan wrote in golf world Monday. It was a rare hiccup because he's uh he's just there's really just a handful of players like our guest today and and Gmac who you go to for actually somebody who sensible sort of comment. Yeah, it's just just yeah exactly. So I don't I don't know. I, he was there the year it rained so much, and I, I don't I'm a little surprised he would uh, use that as a barometer, uh, especially from what I saw today. It looks fantastic. Yeah. It looks browned out and beautiful.
0: I thought so too. Jeff, your name came up when we spoke with Matthew Goggin a couple of weeks ago in relation to this exact point because I remember that time I spoke to you just before the 2007 US Open and you said the thing that had surprised you most was at the start of June 2006, you were just another player. By the end of June 2006, everything you said was gospel and important because you'd won a major. Uh, How have you found that sort of since? You're often quoted as you know, one of the best interviews in the game. Um, how have you found that whole public thing and dealing with it? You told me at the time that you learnt fairly quickly why players like VJ and Tiger and Phil are careful about what they say and sometimes say nothing uh, because it's too dangerous sometimes to say something.
3: I mean, I kind of find it strange. I mean, I think obviously I'm passionate about the game and I – I'm into the game, and I think about the game when I actually leave the golf course. It's not just a means; it's it's just not just what I do. I mean, it's it's something that I love. But I don't understand uh, how these has so many professional. I mean, it's just, it's so much of their life that they can care so little about the game. Really, um, it uh, it surprises me.
0: Really? How do uh, other players react to you, Jeff? Because, and, so, and there's a prime example, McDowell, who's a good guy, one of the good guys, one of the thoughtful guys, and one of those who probably does speak fairly openly and honestly about the game, makes one small slip up, and I'm guilty of it. Here I am sort of giving it to him as though it's, you know, it's it, it's something terrible. But how do the other players respond to you? Because you speak out fairly often on these sorts of topics.
3: I don't think I ever say anything controversial. I mean, I don't think, not that it's like controversial to me, um, <laughs> Um, I think GMAC's great. I mean, as Shaq says, I mean, GMAC is a hes a quote machine, really. He's, he's, he'd be one of the first guys you'd go to. He thinks about the game. He's obviously really passionate about the game. He loves it. He uh, he truly gets it um, on a level that most touring professionals, um, they're just not interested. I mean, it's, it's not that they, they can't get it. It's just that they don't really mind. I mean, they just want to tell me where the next tournament is and tell me where the first tee is and I'm going to go play and I'm going to play well and hold pups and, and take home a check or win the tournament. I mean, that, to them, that's golf and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, so I guess for the from the, the journalists or the media, you, you've got to go to the guys who can talk probably a little bit more broadly or, or, or with some more interest. I, and there's nothing wrong with guys who don't talk about in that respect. It's a shame that Tiger doesn't because he could mm. and he can. Um, he's a student of the game. You know, when he's not playing, he's at home watching the golf on TV. He reads He reads golf books. He, he really is into golf because when you actually ask him a real question and he has a moment of weakness and actually answers the question, <laughs> he is actually quite insightful and pretty
0: impressive, so... Have you talked no. to him much about this sort of stuff? I mean, you obviously had to relate, particularly for a while there when you were at the very top of the game, I think you, you beat him once in one of the World Golf Championships there, so, you know, you obviously know each other. Have you ever sort of chatted golf at a serious level with, with Tiger? He's a very guarded person for understandable reasons, but have you had a chance to peek inside that world at all?
3: Um, yeah, he's always been pretty good with me. I mean, I think if you get inside the ropes and you, uh, you prove yourself to be not uh dangerous to talk to i guess i don't know i, mean, I don't know in tiger as well but he's been really great to me we've had great chats about golf courses and he is i mean he is just a, a student of the games a bit of a strange comment but i mean he's really just a golf nerd you know what i mean he just loves golf he loves everything about it all he thinks about is golf really or well, for most for mostly anyway obviously he has his moments where he doesn't but it's he just loves he loves the game and if i If you hit a shot or someone in your group hits a shot or you, you mentioned something that happened the week before I mean all he, someone hitting a crazy shot or over a tree or a great chip shot he all he wants to do is what do you work on when you chip or what do you think that guy does when he's when he 's hitting his forearm and like he he just loves golf, he loves golf courses, he always wants to talk about the golf courses in Melbourne um, he obviously has a massive passion for coming to Scotland and the UK and playing the British Open a minute or the Open, sorry, it's his favorite tournament. Um, he, uh, he's fantastic. I wish he would. I I don't see why he's so scared about opening up in the press so much. I guess he got burned a little bit early on and he just plays it safe in that respect. And maybe that's the best way for him. Um, but he can, he can speak about golf as well as anybody. Mm.
0: I tend to agree. I've always thought it was a shame. Chucky occasionally gives a bit in a press conference, if you read between the lines carefully, you can sometimes see a bit of depth to some of his answers when it's just golf specific. But of course, most of the stuff he gets asked about is rubbish that's got nothing to do with the game. Isn't yeah, it? that's the truth.
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of it's the questions. Uh, I, I I work very hard to try to when I get the chance to ask him a question to try to ask a golf question, and I've. Um, yeah, I've generally gotten great answers um, to, to really I, – I was just thinking back to some of the things I've gotten to ask him about and, uh, and, and he's been super. Uh, but he does get in a mode in those kinds of situations where even if he gets a question that it's a topic he enjoys, he's kind of in a – uh, I, I got to move this through and and um, and be careful with what I say. And, and understandably, I mean, look at look at uh, how people analyze every word he says. So, the the thing that where he misses I, the boat, I think, and and I don't know if this is a product of his representation or his feelings about after his scandal. But um, <clears throat> he never really has ever sat down with with some of the people who write about stuff that that you know that are kind of golf nerd topics and things and uh and if you you went to his his reps they really would think you're just up to to no good if you wanted to just do another uh, say an interview about architecture so there's this kind of a suspicion there and a um an antipathy and all these these emotions about uh people and you know he really still only will do a sit down with kelly tillman or uh tom rinaldi or people who they view as safe and uh uh, and it's a shame, but, you know, maybe someday he'll, once he's, you know, out of the competitive mode, um, he'll 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 change a little, and, and uh, I mean, that's what's refreshing about Jeff, um, and there are some people who can kind of balance that, and then there are other people, it's, they, I think Tiger likes it as part of his mystique. Mm. Well, I think
0: Matt Goggin and Jeff are both going to tell him that state of the game is the place to do it. It's the <laughs> Oprah Winfrey of golf, Jeff, that's what we're working <clears> on uh, yeah. in a couple of years' time, hopefully we'll have... <laughs> Tiger. But quite seriously, we had a couple of comments on the blog shack after we spoke with Matt and sort of, I think it was, is it Dell? Dell's one of your your regular commenters there. Ah, I sort yes. of said to him, but this is kind of what this game's about, Jeff Ogilvie, is a forum where you can speak about all this sort of stuff without being shouted down, without being restricted to 40 seconds, without being, you know, misquoted or misinterpreted. You just have the freedom to sort of speak and think. It's kind of important that the game has that. Don't you think, Jeff Ogilvie, that... You as a player, I'm sure you at times feel guarded when you're talking to particular people or particular publications. The UK's a great example. You know, the Daily Press over there are not people that you want to want to mess with, with quotes and stuff. But the game needs something like this and other forums, doesn't it? And blogs and and forums where people can talk about the stuff they want to talk about.
3: I think so. I mean, I think as you and Jeff said, I mean, most of the problem is the questions that get asked. I mean, I think if 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 golf questions, heaven forbid somebody actually asked a golf question in a um, press
0: conference on tour. Someone might actually answer with something sensible. It's... Is, there, is there any danger of that? It doesn't seem to be in the offing. Well, Jeff sneaks in the back
3: row every now and then and sneaks up a slightly inflammatory type uh, golf question, but it's generally social type uh, questions. It really very rarely you get asked questions sensible real questions about the golf course or how the game is being played or how the anything to really to do with the game is it's more to do with people and, and and the people in the game rather than the actual game I think if great questions got asked I think great question. I mean you'd, you'd get some better answers uh, I think if uh, Bernie McGuire actually asked a question about golf oh. it would be an interesting. you might get a better response um, i So it's it's not completely the golfer's fault. I think if they they kind of have to be guarded, as you said, because there are some pretty uh, there's some pretty keen people sitting in the front row of a press conference, looking to get people in trouble. There's a few, not I wouldn't say Des Shack is definitely not in this, but there's a blogger or two who looks to get people in trouble who sit in the front row. Um, There is uh, it's just a different. Kind of mentality, I think, in the in the good old days, at, at the end of the round, when guys would sit around the locker and have a beer with Ben or Arnold or Jack or something, and they'd sit in the locker room and actually ask real questions about the golf course, then you'd get real, real answers about golf. I don't, I don't think you get as many. I think the the interest is at a different area at the these days as opposed to the golf. So I mean, I, I wouldn't jump on all the golfers too hard. I think it's it's everybody's fault really. I mean, and like you said forums like this one and i think things like twitter might get interesting in the long term because people can say what they want to say without any filter um blogs less kind of edited media if you like might actually bring it back to kind of the information that everyone wants no filter could
0: go either way, Jeff. Will be, <laughs> we'll watch and see that. Could be interesting. Clates, was it different in the old days, the relationship with the press as a player? Can you remember a time when it was different to what it is now? It's all very orchestrated these days. The players have managers. Tournaments have a designated person who looks after the relationship between the press and the players and the manager. It's all extremely vanilla and sanitised these days. You used to be able to walk up to players many years ago on the range and ask them about stuff. It doesn't happen so much these days. Was it, do you recall it being different back in the day, so to speak? Well,
2: I suppose it was. The big difference in Australia was that there were golf riders who actually went who went to tournaments. I mean, was, I mean now the, they don't go, send guys to tournaments. The, the, the Herald Sun, the biggest newspaper in Melbourne, doesn't send a golf rider to the Australian Open in Sydney. So you, you have the situation where Huggy and I sat in the press tent last year at the Australian Open and there were four guys writing for the tabloid papers in Sydney, none of whom ever went out of the tent to watch a shot hit on any hole. So, how can you write about golf when that's the case? And, and I was with an editor of the – a former editor of The Age last night. We were talking about the future of newspapers and of which he sees there is none. You're
0: going to say it would be a short conversation, yeah. wouldn't it? we would you yeah. move on to after that.
2: Well, it? he was terrific. But we were talking about – people lament the lack of golf in The Age, which was one of the great golf papers Peter Thompson wrote for him forever and Peter Stone and some terrific writers. And now there's almost no golf in the paper. And his point was, well, They've just put up a paywall. He said, "How can you put up a paywall when you've taken away all the great writers? Why is anyone going to pay for watch, reading nothing?" But um, so so people in Melbourne lament that there's so little golf in the papers. But never in the history of the game has there been so much great writing about golf that's accessible. I mean, I mean, the only golf that you could find thirty years ago was in the Age. Now you can go to Shackleford's blog, and you can you can go to. Twitter and you can go to websites and there's, there's golf riding good and bad everywhere. So in terms of the coverage of the game, it's never been better really. Mm. It's, but it's just not in newspapers anymore.
0: Technology is interesting, and not just the clubs and balls and all that sort of technology, and we've spoken about this before too, Shack. but I wanted to ask you about this, Jeff Ogilvie. They're going to have um, mobile phones on course again this year at the Open. They trialled it last year. Of course, most of the US tour events, you have that now. There's those, they're having big LED or plasma TVs, I think, around the golf course at the Open this year. How's technology changed at tournaments, not just the equipment you play with, but the actual technology around the tournaments in your time? And, and has that had any impact on – as you said, it's all about entertainment. isn't it? Everywhere you go, there's a TV or a camera or – well, something, isn't there?
3: It is. I mean, it's changed a little bit. Um, the PGA Tour in the US tried to ban the phones for a while, um, realised that it was a losing battle, really, and it wasn't really realistic. Um, and you you would probably lose a pretty large percentage of people who would come into the gate. I mean, not many people want to give up that phone anymore to go and watch watch a sporting event. Um so the last couple of years they've, they've let it in and they started trying to have designated phone areas and stuff, which I don't know if they actually police it or not, but it's very rarely that you actually get a phone ring or a camera click or whatever in your golf swing. Um, so the last couple of years it seems to have worked really well in the US. Um, I think the issue with the PGA Tour really has is with this um, videoing the play and posting it on the internet really fast I think uh, you've got the network CBS and NBC and Golf Channel and all these people pay astronomical fees to have exclusive footage of golf tournaments and when you've just got um, everyone walking around inside the gates trying to post stuff on the internet really fast I mean I know it's the it's the free world and you can do whatever you want but there's kind of a there's a line that's there somewhere that's that gets crossed every now and then. And I think the tour is really just worried about that. How do they manage the, well, what if we're on a tape delay of 30 minutes because of rain or something and people keep, keep posting YouTube videos of what's happening on the golf course. I mean, that there, there is a bit of a funny area there. And I think that's the area of worry. The The fact about phone ringing and people taking photos and stuff i think people are pretty sensitive about turning the flashes and the and the sounds off their phones and they can take video and cameras and photos of me while i play for all all they want for i'm concerned it doesn't worry me but it's the it's the copyright infringements or the exclusive arrangements they've got with the networks which which makes it a tricky area i think
0: well, the whole media is in this conundrum, isn't it? What do you do with the internet? As you said, there's no point having a tape delay anymore, is there, Shaq? Because even if there's no pictures, it'll be all over Twitter anyway. I had to turn Twitter off during the Masters because we were running about a minute behind here in Australia on the TV coverage, so I had to turn the Twitter off because I was getting news I didn't want um, in order to watch it unfold.
1: First world problems. Yeah, so, that's right. Very yeah, yeah, first world yeah. problems. But, uh, uh, yeah. uh, one other thought, on, by the way, on the media and the players. Uh, uh, this is something that drives Doug Ferguson nuts. Um, you know, it's very hard to have a conversation with a player in a press conference, um, and you know we really are, are like ten times worse than the the old Dan Jenkins story, where you know the guy could be telling you the story about how he how he uh, stabbed his wife to death and loves to wear his KKK hood, and, and then somebody will raise their hand and say, "Are you playing uh, Dural next week?" You know the the rally killing is. I mean, I don't even make fun of rally killers anymore because. A lot of these times, say with Tiger, uh, certain players, you you get your chance to get your question in, and there isn't much of a conversation. Um, you know, when you have a microphone and people identifying themselves and. So that's kind of changed things a little bit for the, for the worse. The but,
0: um, conference has never been a place to get good material. though. Ever.
1: No. And then there, then there are certain writers. Um, and I, I just, I, I have to bring this up with our guest uh, that just love to get somebody right after they shoot about 74 and, um, right when they get off the course. And so there are certain people who make the job more difficult for the rest of us who know when to approach a golfer and, and when not to approach a golfer. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs>
0: okay. And we'll, we won't press uh, Jeff Ogilvie for a comment. Gents, we've gone way over the time that I thought we would. It's been fascinating chatting. We could go on all day, but we better not because you've got to catch a plane, Jeff uh, Shackelford. And Jeff Ogilvie, I'm sure you need to get to bed because it's the middle of the night in the UK, but it's been uh, fabulous to have you aboard. Best of luck next week, Jeff Ogilvie. I know the, 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 whole, the great thing about players at your level, it can all turn around in one week. And if you've got good feelings going and whatnot, who knows what might happen at Muirfield next week. So we wish you the best of luck with that and thank you for taking some time to chat to us today. Jeff, are you with us?
1: I think he dropped off. He I, I heard I heard a sound. Uh, I think he got disconnected, which is why he was uh, – I think it was when I started mentioning uh, there was a certain rider that that's always right. gets him right after the he round, excluded uh, himself from the, the bad yeah. round. And,
0: uh, fair enough. Well, uh, best of luck anyway next week, Jeff. Clates, what do you reckon? Uh, Ogilvy, he's got to be a chance. Any player of that level, he can come back any yeah. day. Can't he?
2: Yeah, I'm so. sure he'll be fine, yeah.
0: So no problem. What? Great to talk to you today, Clayton. as always. Thanks, There's boys. Time. And Shaq, always great to have you on board. Enjoy the Open over there, and I'm sure we'll uh, we'll see some great stuff on Twitter and the blog. I'm looking forward to, uh, to reading your material over the coming week.
1: All right, thanks, Rod.
0: And that wraps it up for State of the Game. Thanks for being with us, do Hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back to do it all again after the Open, and uh, looking forward to having a chat about that and see what unfolds. And uh, looking forward to that, looking forward to your company, then also on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music Writers Retreat provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.